my sister, my nieces and my brother-in-law spending a year traveling around the country in a camper van. And I've just driven eight and a half hours from London to come and surprise them. They don't know I'm coming. Um, do you guys have a spare beer? Yeah, oh my God, really? How random. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Hey? <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a human. A human I know. We are deeply connected to the natural world around us. We've evolved with it, in a relationship with it, giving to and taking from it. We are, it's often forgotten, part of the whole. So the way our psychologies, our brain chemistry, the landscapes of our minds have evolved is connected with and mirrors the landscapes and phenomenon we find in nature. Natural landmarks become psychological landmarks, telling us surprising things about how we orient ourselves towards the world, how the air, the earth and the water literally flows through our neurons as sensations on the mind, creating its limitations and its possibilities. The sea has long been a source of inspiration for some of our greatest thinkers and writers, a great unknown to be explored, a passage to be used to transport goods, a place of relaxation, a dwelling place of monsters, a provider of sustenance, but could the nature of the sea, what it is, how it moves, what it represents, tell us something surprising about ourselves? The ocean floor is a dream world, silent, vast, mystic, unreal, lonely beyond words, beauty that haunts one, majesty all its own. Which one of you got? On YouTube? Yeah. 117. Thousand. Thousand. <laughs> Have you actually? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think of that? Yeah. Ooh. Wow. Get away from me. <laughs> Go for a swim. make us human. They teach us values, orient us, provide a framework for operating in, imparting parcels of guidance about who we are, how to interact with one another, and what to seek. Why do you like the sea? There aren't any rules, unlike a swimming pool, and there are lots of things to look at. You're a good swimmer. No. Yeah. You are? Yeah. 
ancient mythology is full of sea creatures, adventures and rescues, and Greek and Roman writers reflected on our relationship with the sea. There was an ancient fear, for example, that the sea might dry up and that this would mean the end of the world because all of life relied on and even came from the sea. The ancient Greek Thales of Miletus was the first mathematician, maybe the first scientist, and maybe the first philosopher. Instead of relying on mythology and gods to explain the world, Thales argued that everything was made of the same stuff, matter, and that everything came from one single original substance, water. This was pretty accurate, foreshadowing our scientific understanding of the world, of everything being made from atoms, existing in a unity and sharing the same fundamental properties. Xenophanes, another Greek philosopher, said that the sea is the source of all the water on Earth because the great salt expanse is the begetter of clouds and winds and rivers. At one time, he thought, the land must have emerged out of the sea because seashells had been found up in the mountains. Because we're all made of the same stuff, because we live in unity with nature, reliant on the landscape around us, we can see the properties of the sea reflected in the stories the Greeks told. The tide's coming in, I better go. Zeus's daughter, the god Persephone, wept tears into springs that mortals could eventually drink. Poseidon, the god of the sea, like his father Kronos, could be angry, unpredictable. The sea, of course, could be turbulent. Homer's Odyssey, the first great Western story, details Odysseus's ten-year attempt to reach home across the seas after the Trojan War. For the Greeks, the idea of Nostos, an attempt to reach home by sea, was the height of heroism. The sea then, for the ancient Greeks, represented life, mystery, adventure, heroism, but also unpredictability, anger, and the uncontrollable wrath of the gods. Two sides of a coin. What do you like about the sea, Brookie? That it's, um, nice and calm sometimes. Nice and calm? Oh, that's nice. Do you like bodyboarding? Okay. <laughs> Herman Melville's Moby Dick treats the sea as a philosophical concept. For Melville, the sea marks the unknowable, yet it connects us to one another provides the means to ship goods, is a source of life, of food, rain, salt. The sea is life and death. There's no controlling it. Moby Dick's Ishmael said that, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. No reflection on the sea would be complete without Moby Dick. 
a story of an obsession with the pursuit of a sperm whale who had devoured Captain Ahab's leg. Melville knew that generations of writers had seen something in the sea that was also reflected in humanity. He asked, why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity? Surely all this is not without meaning. Could we treat the sea as an allegory, a lesson, a guide? Melville asks us to consider the sea and the land. Do you find a strange allegory in yourself? He says. He writes that in the soul of man there lies one insular island, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by the horrors of a half-known ocean around it. Cryptically, he warns, push not off from that isle, thou canst ever return. Are we all on our own little personal islands that we each know? All our own half-controlled ships that are ultimately surrounded by the unknown and the uncontrollable. Philosopher Alfonso Lingis writes of the sea that one takes nothing, apprehends nothing, comprehends nothing. One is only a brief visitor, an eye that no longer pilots or estimates that moves, or rather is moved, with nothing in view. And there's another message in Moby Dick too. Ishmael, the narrator, searches for references to whales in the history of zoology, art, religion, fishing. But there are so many perspectives on everything that it's impossible for him to pin the knowledge about the whale down, to find a precise scientific definition. Like the sea, knowledge is ultimately fluid, stormy, unpredictable. It's no accident of evolution that those things we associate with the sea in history, in writing, in ideas, the unknowable, the adventurous, the mortal, the ungraspable, the sublime, find their analogies in our own lives. By reflecting on the sea, we can reflect on ourselves. This is why literature about the natural world, romantic philosophy and things like travel can be so fulfilling, so character building. Ultimately, for Melville, the sea is about possibilities and limits. He said, however baby man may brag of his science and skill, and however much in a flattering future that science and skill may augment, yet forever and forever, to the crack of doom, the sea will insult and murder him. If we become too arrogant, the sea will remind us of our limits. Yet we're still drawn to it. To adventure. To exploration. To the unknown. Does the sea also act as a magnet? When we say things like we're drawn to the sea, are we in some ways being literal? Is this feeling something real? Melville noted that if you set a man on his legs, set his feet a-going, he will infallibly lead you to water. This is just like, that's where we are right now. Right. With you. And remember when we, we went up a hill? Yeah. And we went to like... Here, I think. We went here for another 
campsite. Right. They went there for a campsite and they went all the way to that campsite. Such a long way. How many counties have you been through? 17. Wow. Freud thought that dreams tell us something about the repressed, about our unconscious desires, ancient impulses that had to be buried deep down to live in civilization. To live a new way meant burying the desire to live an older way. But those desires remain somewhere deep in our psyche, occasionally emerging, showing their heads, making a splash before submerging back into the depths. These are dreams, Freudian slips, drunken mishaps, maybe. Enter this guy, Sandor Ferenzi. He was a friend of Freud's who was central to the development of psychoanalysis at the beginning of the 20th century. He became fascinated by a recurring image in his patients' dreams, fish. In many cases, patients reported dreams about fish while pregnant, he was convinced that somewhere in our psyches, the symbol of the fish was associated with fertility. He realized that unlike sea animals, land animals often grew in the amniotic sac, floating, swimming in a protective sea in the womb. Maybe, he thought, when we emerged out of the sea, we still needed water to grow in. From this, Ferenzi developed a bizarre theory we were driven from the sea, forced onto land when the sea dried up. But the evolutionary structure of our brains retained some faint echoes of its old ways in the water. After all, if we lose limbs, we can often still feel them as phantom limbs. If we lose our sight, we're still able to imagine seeing. Maybe, he thought, we're more primordially connected to the sea than we think. Maybe being born out of the safe bubble of the womb is, quote, nothing other than the individual recapitulation of the great catastrophe that forced so many animals, and most certainly our own animal ancestors, to adapt to life on land once the sea had dried up, and, above all, to relinquish their breathing through gills, and to equip themselves with organs that could take in air. Maybe, through evolution, the amniotic fluid in the mother's body represents, as it were, an interjected sea, and that the 28-day female menstruation period was a result of the influences of the phases of the moon and the ebb and flow of the tides of our sea-dwelling ancestors. Frenzy thought that many of our desires lingered from our time in the sea, that our move onto land created new needs, and like Freud, he thought the old desires and impulses were repressed, pushed to the bottom of our ancient psyches. Maybe somewhere we do retain some half-remembered itch to climb the trees of our ape ancestors and swim the seas of our fish ancestors. Maybe the mussels know somehow that they evolved to traverse those environments too. Maybe that explains the draw of the sea, a beckoning back home. We might not be able to learn anything steady, fixed, anchored, 
or moored from the sea. After all, it means so many different things to so many people in so many periods. However, maybe that's the point. It provides not answers, but the means, the vessel, for reflection. It supplies diving in points, a way to dip the toe into many surprising areas. If the mind and the sea are mirrored in one another, in their unpredictability, their unknowability, through the desire for exploration, through dreams, adventure, wonder, then maybe being in the sea, thinking about it, using it, visiting it, travelling on it, fishing in it, writing about it, painting it, taking a photo of it, reading about it, or watching a YouTube video about it, is in some connected way, like splashing around our own souls. I've been trying to spot um, jellyfish, or thornback rays, or humpback whales. Can I stand up? Wow! Everything about the fish is wonderfully made. The muscles, glands, nerves, and bones that go to make up its body. But the most fascinating thing about these little creatures is their family life. 